turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, our passage this morning is um, part 2 of Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. And as I mentioned last week, we enter into a new uh, thought or a, uh, a building, a new building block in the thought of Paul in the book of Ephesians or in his letter to the Ephesians. We're in that section of this letter that I've titled, The Earthly Reality of the Exalted Christ, seeing that all parts or sections of Ephesians join together under this overall heading of the Exalted Christ, discussing such things as, as what is the heavenly witness to the Exalted Christ, this, the inseparable operations of our triune God as we see expressed in chapter 1. We find that it has an earthly expression or an earthly witness to the exalted Christ in the church in chapters 2 and 3 where uh, Paul expresses that but there he takes the two men and now makes one new man, breaking down the wall of hostility between the two. And so in doing so, there is a implication that uh, God is making a new humanity in Christ as he is the new Adam. And now as we look at chapter 4, we're, we're looking at the earthly reality of the exalted Christ. Maybe even considering as we're getting into this, what is the function of the exalted Christ on earth now? And how, does, and how he functions through uh, these gifts that he bestows through these offices given to the church. Such that uh, through the work of these offices that... They would equip the saints, that they were given for the work of service, and that they were given to the building up of the body of Christ, and that they're given until the time as to which we all attain the unity of the faith. And that the result of this is that the body of Christ would no longer be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that they'd be anchored in the knowledge and the fullness of Christ. And so we continue to see the outworking of that this morning. We continue to see how what was presented in the first half of the unity discussed in the first half of Paul's letter now turns to an instruction to the believers on how to walk in holiness. This idea that holiness is not automatically a result of unity. Otherwise, there would be no need for instruction. This portion of the chapter that we're specifically looking at in four can be broken up into two parts. That there is, as we addressed last week, negatively how believers should not live. Something that is to be left behind. And then this morning we address positively how believers should live. And so he began this section by exhorting his readers to not live as unbelievers. He continues the exhortation of 4.1, that they would live worthy of their calling. Follow along as I read for us Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. 
So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in, the understand, in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over the sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And that you being renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. As the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we seek your help this morning as we come before your word. We seek your help that we may be not just hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask that you would bridle my tongue to speak your truth. That it would be faithful to your word. And so that you may receive all the glory due to your name in your church now and forevermore. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder as if you've ever read about a place before you visited it. In preparation for maybe a vacation or something of the like or just a road trip or something Maybe you researched what to expect or what sites to see. Well, and then having finally made it to that destination, I wonder if you found that the words that you read, though they were informative, were incomplete or insufficient until you experienced it for yourself. I remember, I don't know how much reading I did upon the Grand Canyon prior to visiting it, but I do remember standing there at the precipice and being overcome and awed by its beauty and grandeur. If I had read something of the Grand Canyon prior to visiting it, I might have found it on the National Park website, which says the Grand Canyon National Park is a world heritage site. It encompasses uh, 1.2 million acres and lies on the Colorado Plateau in northwestern Arizona. The land is semi-arid and consists of raised plateaus and structural basins typical of the southwestern United States. Drainage systems have cut deeply through the rock, forming numerous steep-walled canyons. Forests are found at higher elevations, while the lower elevations are made up of a series of desert basins. Now, for those of you who, like me, who have actually seen the Grand Canyon in person, know that this doesn't really quite cut it. Doesn't quite communicate the beauty and the grandeur. It's one thing to commit the previous facts to memory, and it's another to stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon and be taken back by its beauty. To see... What looks can only be described, again, where words may fail, is something of a canvas and a finely painted landscape. For 
it is truly breathtaking. And as I stand up here, even describing it to you and my experience there, uh, I came across a quote by John Wesley Powell, who was a 19th century explorer, who is supposed to be one of the first Americans to comprehensively map the Grand Canyon. He wrote, The wonders of the Grand Canyon cannot be adequately represented in symbols of speech, nor by speech itself. The resources of the graphic art are taxed beyond the powers in attempting to portray its features. Language and illustration combined must fail. I think this is illustrative of Paul's point in our passage this morning, or at least at the beginning of our passage this morning, where Paul Bain observes that there is a knowledge of the letter and another spiritual, as the scriptural calls them. A knowledge speculative and effective. The one does conceive and apprehend the things of Christ, but makes no change. The other does alter and dispose the affections to Christ and the ways wherein Christ has walked. And this knowledge and learning of Christ does far excel the other, as much as the experimental tasting of any creature does the knowledge we have of it by reading authors. He that tastes a cup of wine knows it far otherwise than he that reads this or that of the taste of it. Paul tells to the Ephesians, that knowledge of Christ is to be experiential. To know Christ is to be changed by him. I was reminded of a sermon I once heard by Paul Washer, some, uh, one that many of you know, and he talks, he's giving an illustration, and he's saying, if I had told you that uh, just earlier today, before I came up here, I, I was hit by a car. And he was going, the car was going probably about 25 miles an hour. And it struck me right in the side, full, full on. And he carries the illustration. And he says, you would think I was out of my mind as I stand before you. And he brings it to a point as only Paul Washer can. And maybe I'll try this morning. But he says, such are those who say they know Christ and yet are unchanged by him those that have heard Christ and yet go on unaffected. Such is Paul's intention here this morning, where he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. We'll look at our passage this morning under two headings. If you're taking notes, you can write down, the first heading is description. And the second heading we'll get to is prescription. As it relates to Paul, uh, the, as it relates to description, Paul continues his thought, which he began in verse 17, where he says that, they, that he affirms together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. But he does so here with a comparison. That comparison we see is to continue to walk in the same pattern of life after having come to Christ is a fundamental difference as living is to being dead. That you no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk. And, he, and, he, and we talked about how he explained how the Gentiles walked, how, how unbelievers walk. 
And he utilizes a comparative conjunction there in verse 20. Paul drives home the separation from their former manner of life that now exists in the new life of the believer. This comparison is between their former manner of life and that which now exists in the new life of the believer. Because he tells them, but you did not learn Christ in this way. One commentator notes that since Christians believe that Christ was a living person whose presence was mediated by the proclamation and teaching about him, learning Christ involves not only learning about him, but also being shaped by him. The risen Christ, who is the source of a new way of life as well as a new relationship with God. This understanding that we are to learn Christ is not to gather a bunch of propositional truth and then take a test on on whether or not you have learned Christ. This learning of Christ is related to a pattern of life. It's related to a manner of life as he will go on to compare. Paul presses true learning from an outward perception to an inward reception. We can perceive the propositional truths of Christ. There are many of you that began that way in Christianity. Maybe you, you had said, well, I know there's Christ. I know Jesus existed. I believe that he is a historical figure. But you had not received him inwardly. Many of you children will grow up this way. You'll grow up hearing the gospel preached from this moment on. You'll hear of Christ. You'll learn of Christ. You'll know what he said to his disciples. You'll know of his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And yet if you only have this outward perception and there is no inward reception then you will continue to walk just as the Gentiles walk. And oftentimes you will do so at the first opportunity you find yourself to do it. That was why, though, as we will see, you still come here this morning. Your parents still bring you here this morning because they know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so our prayer is that these means of grace would be that life-giving truth that the Spirit would use to bring you from darkness to light, from an outward perception to an inward reception. Christ expressed the same idea when his disciples questioned him about why he spoke in parables. In Matthew 13, Christ said in, 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 in verse 14, in, this, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you keep on hearing, but, not, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull with their ears. They scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. And speaking of 
those that believed, Christ said, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And Paul describing these believers, he describes them by, by people that have learned Christ, that have heard him and been taught in him. Accordingly, Paul explains to the Romans in chap, or to the Romans in, in Romans chapter 10, in verse 14, he says, "How will they believe in him whom they have not heard?" You know, it's in that uh, original language that we can see that that word in there in the original can also be translated of. How will they believe, or excuse me, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Or the idea is that whom is an added word. How will they believe in him they have not heard? The idea is, is that Christ speaks through his appointed means, through the preaching of his word. And so in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And this is somewhat foundational to Paul's expression of hearing and learning in Ephesians chapter 4. Where he additionally, he adds the causal phrase, just as truth is in Jesus. So Paul says that we are, or that we have learned Christ. We've heard him and be taught, taught him just as truth is in Jesus. Paul is not trying to get the Ephesians to merely understand, as I've said, a set of propositional truths or life principles based upon an examination of the life of a dead itinerant Jewish rabbi. He's not trying to teach uh, the teachings of Christ as if he was merely a historical figure who is no more. No, Paul is trying to get the Ephesians to see that their life is connected to a life. And that life exists within a person in whom is truth. Not in whom spoke truth, though Christ did. Not in whom possessed the attribute of truthfulness, which according to his human nature, he did but in whom is truth, in whom proclaimed that he is the way, the truth, and the life. David Allen makes an important comment on verse 21 in this phrase, the truth is in Jesus. He says it offers a metaphysical claim that locates truthfulness in a particular person who is wisdom incarnate and God in the flesh. If ultimate spiritual truth cannot be separated from Jesus Christ, then locating oneself as a pupil under his instruction makes all the sense in the world. Discipleship comes not as a consumer choice, nor as a mere spiritual strategy. Rather, the singular claim to one's truth makes discipleship a necessary epistemological way. The idea is, is that truth is not abstract or autonomous. 
that all truth is God's truth because God is truth. We could uh, understand it in a certain way also in, in our current day and age. Uh, we view, uh, the world views love as something autonomous. The word love is autonomous, open to the definition of a culture, of anything really. But if we don't combat that idea with the idea that, no, this is the right, if we just combat that with another propositional truth, essentially, well, this is the right definition of truth or of love in this scenario, then we come up short to proclaiming to them the actual foundation of our definition, that we give a definition to love because God is love and that we express love or no love because we are created in his image. And so we're beholden to him as our creator. And so is the same for truth. Truth is not just some abstract principle or autonomous thing that we go and discover. We discover truth as it resides in the one who is truth. And so as it relates to learning Christ, of course, we go and we are discipled by Christ. Of course, we learn Christ. We hear him. We're taught in him because truth is in Jesus. And so Paul describes the believer as one who has heard Christ. And having heard, entered into a life of learning, of following after truth. But not truth abstractly or merely propositionally, but after the one in whom all truth exists. That is Christ Jesus our Lord. This idea that the description that he gives of believers, of, of, hear, of learning Christ, of hearing Christ, of being taught in him, is one in which he's going to then make comparison or give illustration to. And he does so. He, he does so by answering this implied question. So then what does this learning consist of? What does it look like if you have learned Christ, if you have heard him, if you have been taught in him? What does it look like? Well, then he gives the prescription. In short, it is contained in, in two ideas. This learning of Christ consists and is contained in two ideas. Mortification and vivification. The putting to death and to the bringing to life. In doing, he also contrasts two men. The word translated self there in our passage, in verse 22, that you lay aside the old self, and in verse 24, and put on the new self, is literally translated or literally means man. It's, it's translated self because it, it's conveying the inner man of us all, but it means man. And so though it references the inner man, I, I can't help but make a connection, especially in the theology of Paul expressed in other places like Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, that he's contrasting two men. He's contrasting those that are in the likeness of Adam, those that are in the likeness of Christ. 
the old man and the new man. One being deemed old and corrupted and the other being deemed new and created in righteousness and holiness of truth. So that they would see this inconsistency, that they would live according to their old nature, their old federal head, that they, they, would, they would live according to their old likeness. And that they would turn from that and live according to that which they've been recreated and made new in. Namely, in the likeness of Christ, the new Adam. He first addresses this and the idea of mortification. In verse 22, he says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. As to the old self, it is literally the old man. It is former and corrupted. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. It's a, it's a helpful parallel passage for us this morning. Colossians chapter, chapter 3 beginning in verse 5. Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Here we see that the old self and the evil practices described here are ones that are rooted in anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech, lying. This idea that we are to put those off, that when we find those in ourselves, we recognize them as inconsistent with the new creature that we have been created in Christ. And so we are to put them off. We are to deny them. We are to cut them off. We are to repent and turn from them. We are to flee from them. Oftentimes, though, they don't come to us in the form of a poison pill. If these... If, these, if the old self comes to us and, and presents us something, it doesn't come to us as a poison pill or as a dagger to stab ourselves with and cut ourselves and hurt ourselves with. It comes to us in deceit. We're, giving, we're given helpful markers to paddle against the old self by how it's described in Ephesians 4. I think if we recognize how it's described, we may do better at battling our old self as it rises up within us in different circumstances of life. The first description that's given of the old self in chapter 4 is one of corruption. 
lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted. First Corinthians, or excuse me, James chapter 1, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away enticed by his own lusts. Then when lust has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This corruption, corruption is that which tends towards destruction. If you are to think about these evil practices or these, uh, this former manner of life that so easily arises in us, think of it as being corrupt in that it will tend towards or lead towards destruction. James says that when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What then does it destroy? Well, Paul is speaking to Christians. There is a warning, though, that we would examine ourselves that if we be in the faith, do we, do we have a former manner of life? Have we truly been... Are we truly learned? Have we truly learned Christ? Have we truly heard him? Have been taught in him? Is there a former manner of life? There's a certain implication there, but the if in verse 20, is not one of contingency. It's one of implied uh, reality. If indeed, if as I grant to you, you have heard him and have been taught in him. And so as he addresses believers, the question is, as it relates to putting off this former manner of of life or this old self, which is being corrupted and corruption is that which tends towards destruction. What then does it destroy? What is at risk in the life of believer? If, if anything, well, it's not the inherited life found in Christ for that is safe within our Lord. We're not talking about losing our salvation here, but we are talking about the enjoyment of that life. That's safe in the Lord. We're talking about the contentment offered by faith in the promises of that life. When our sin, our old self rises up within us in its corrupted nature, it is seeking to destroy the enjoyment afforded to us in this life. I'm not talking about ease and comfort. I'm talking about true spirit-wrought enjoyment, spirit-wrought contentment in the providences, the ordained providences of our life. The other thing that it destroys is the experience of fellowship with God. And so the comfort and peace afforded in that fellowship. A child's relationship can never be severed from their parents. For they've, even in our day and age, you can apply at a certain age to be emancipated from your parents but they can never really sever that relationship because they carry around in their very DNA the markers of that relationship. So we can never not be children of God. But if that child or our children should choose to leave our home and live homeless, they would deprive themselves of the comfort available as a household member. And so this is the corruption of our old self. This is the, what it seeks to destroy. 
This is what we would do well to remind ourselves when we're enticed and tempted to act upon our old nature, to live according to our former manner of life, that we would remind ourselves that it is corrupt and will lead to destruction. It will destroy our enjoyment. It will destroy our contentment. It will destroy the fellowship that we experience with God and so the comfort and peace afforded in that fellowship. But as we know, the other thing we need to be reminded is that this former manner of life does not rise up in us and say, hey, let's destroy your enjoyment and your comfort. Let's destroy your contentment. No, Paul describes it and he says that this former manner of life rises up in us and it's being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. James chapter 1 is helpful again. Deceit, deceitfulness or deceit is a false premise or a half-truth. There can be truth in a deceit. It's just not the whole truth. Or it can be a full false premise. James chapter 1, continuing on from where we left off, in the verse 16, see if you hear uh, the, the unified thought of the Spirit in His Word. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Consider that came right after James talked about being tempted to sin. Right after he said, that sin or this lust being conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brethren. I think he does so in, in, in seeing the uh, analogy of Scripture and where Scripture explains itself. I think it's playing upon what we read in Ephesians 4. That there is a corruption of the old self and it's corrupted and presents itself deceitfully to us. Do not be deceived. So what is the implication? It deceives us. Because it tries to supplant the providential gifts of God with idols. If we're not to be deceived, and why are we not to be deceived? Well, what is the truth? That every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. I think we're not to be deceived in the circumstances of our life. We're not to be deceived in the providences of our lives, the things that we don't have. We're not to be deceived by it. We're not to be deceived by the things we do have and seek to keep at all costs. We're not to be deceived and to put our trust in these things. Deceitful lusts try to supplant the providential gifts of God with idols. Idols of immorality, of impurity, of passion, of evil desire, of greed, essentially of self. Do we receive the circumstances of our lives as given? 
from the Father of lights as being one of the every good thing given and every perfect gift from above. But when it's given to us in the different circumstances, and obviously the implication is trial, but we can forget that what we have has been given of God and what he gives, he can take away. So we need not worry. That's kind of what... uh, Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, we need not worry what you will wear and what you will eat. It will be provided to you. These deceitful lusts try to tell us that though God doesn't give us every good thing, He withholds some good things. He doesn't give us perfect gifts. He he gives us imperfect gifts. That something has changed in him or, or something is different. This is the deceitful lust of the old self. And this is what we are to put off. This is what we are to know so that we may lay aside the old self. This putting off and putting on is, is, is certainly have a, a clothing relationship there's a an analogy to the being clothed right well it's not our nature to go around unclothed if we put something off it's not for us to go around unclothed but so if we are to put something off then correspondingly we are to put something on we do do battle against our sin and against our old nature. But if we are just putting off and not putting on, then we're opening, our room, we're opening room for greater evil practices, as the principles of God's word say. This idea of vivification, of bringing to life We see in verses 23 and 24 and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the old on the new self, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. I think Colossians three is helpful for us again. Colossians three is helpful for us again in in chapter three. Continuing on where we left off in verse 10. And have put on the new self who is being renewed in, the true, in a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved... Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. There's a little saying that... A forgiven Christian forgives. This idea that we are to put off 
is coupled with an idea that we are to put on something. And that this happens not through works in the sense that we earn it because it is something to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. It's something that takes place first in the mind. And then we see that as it springs forth from the inner man, it clothes us in the likeness of God, which has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. The gentle The Gentile walk is marked by futility of mind. The Christian walk is to be marked by spirit-renewed minds. At the new birth, the birth from above, our minds are renewed. We have a new center of gravity in our thinking, God and his glory. We have a new considered resolve to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The understanding that we are exchanging clothes is also an understanding that we exchange masters. If you can, turn with me quickly to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Now, if you have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For death For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but to the life that he lives, he lives to God. So consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may, that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. This idea that we are to put on is also an idea that we are to serve. We no longer serve sin, but we now serve Christ. We now serve his righteousness. This idea that we are created in the likeness of God, or we are the new self, which, is, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. We've been recasted and recreated in the likeness of the new Adam. Paul is kind of saying, so act like it. Stop acting like that hasn't happened in your life. Act like you've been made new in Christ. But he doesn't do so. Again, he doesn't do so under a covenant of works, under one in which you are to trudge on. There is some trudging. I think there is some trudging in our pilgrimage. We need to be able to put one foot in front of the other. But we are, we are not to go in our own strength. Here's the encouragement at the end of this. We're looking at putting on and putting off and we're relating it to clothes. As, as I've 
have many children and still have some children in this stage of life, at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day, they need help. They need help getting undressed and getting dressed. So we too, as children of God, should seek help from our Heavenly Father to put to death the old self and put on the new. We see our children and they struggle when they're young, putting on their shirt or their shoes the wrong way, or the pants are inside out, they're backwards, two legs and one leg, and we want to help them. Hey, let me help you. No, 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 I can do it, I can do it, if they can talk. What do we think about that in that child? Often, and when they're young, it's foolishness. They need our help. They need to be shown. And where the analogy breaks down is there will never be a time in our life where we won't need help from our Father in heaven to clothe us, to put on the new self. But we have him as our help. We are called to seek him to come before the throne of grace and seek this help from our gracious and loving father who looks upon us as he looks upon Christ in righteousness and holiness of truth. Let us pray. Heavenly father, we are your children. We are the sheep of your pasture. And just like children, we often are foolish. We often seek to do things in our own strength. Oh Lord, convict our hearts to renew our dependence upon you. Protect us, Lord. King Jesus, protect us from our old self that so easily arises in us. in its corruption, in its deceitfulness, that we may put off our old self and put on the new self that you have so lovingly and graciously provided, that you have purchased in your body and blood, you have gloriously displayed in your resurrection. Lord, we thank you for the gift of this day where we're reminded of these things. We thank you for the gift of the sacrament of the table where we're able to see the emblems of these things so that we may grow in our faith. We thank you. We give you praise. And we do ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.